Short Stories of Misadventures in Morocco, excerpts from the book With Open Arms, written and narrated by me, Matthew Felix. The Mad Hatter I was still traveling with Peter the Australian. Having just visited the Saharan sand dunes, our next destination was the Dades Gorges. We hoped to take a long-distance taxi, faster and more comfortable than the bus, which wasn't leaving for another hour, but we needed someone to split the costs. Looking around, we saw a man and woman our age who appeared to be in the same situation. Before we knew it, we had all agreed to share a cab. Two drivers had been waiting for our queue to begin negotiating. One approached and made an offer. While all of us thought it sounded a little high, our new travel companion, Jean-Luc, was outraged. Are you kidding? He balked. That's more than a Moroccan makes in an entire year. Not only was the driver stunned into silence, so were Jean-Luc's girlfriend, Hélène, and I. Peter was spared the horror of the arrogant gaffe since the negotiations were taking place in French. Regaining his composure, the driver muttered something in Arabic and stormed back to his car. Before I could reconsider traveling with the couple, two more drivers approached. We negotiated an acceptable price with one, and mere minutes later we were off. Jean-Luc and Hélène lived in Paris. They had been traveling a little over a week and were planning on staying for another. Unassuming and polite, she was attractive in a pleasant, unremarkable way. She wore her dark blonde hair pulled back because of the heat, her skin showing little signs of having seen the Moroccan sun. He was taller than she was, with a small paunch, thin arms, and hairy tree-trunk legs. Although he took pride in his appearance, his thick hair perfectly quaffed in defiance of the elements, his ill-fitting shorts, polo with upturned collar, and leather loafers seemed questionable choices. Designer frames protected dark beady eyes, and his head was perpetually cocked in suspicion and disdain. The trip was intensely hot, all the more so because the taxi lacked air conditioning. The fact it was darting like a bullet across the desert plain made little difference, sweltering heat streaming in through the vents. At times, the stark, rocky landscape was black, the earth charred to the point of cracking, seemingly scorched beyond any possibility of supporting life. Occasionally we came upon a town, our vehicle forced to slow down as it meandered through busy streets. Whenever we did, conversation stopped, as we all paused to look out the window, fascinated to see people living in realities so different from our own. Inevitably, the townspeople were as curious about us as we were about them, straining to catch a glimpse of the foreigners passing through their midst. After a few hours on the road, we arrived at a hotel recommended in one of our guidebooks. The reception was empty, although we heard Arabic music emanating from somewhere deep within the building. We called out. Nothing. Hélène walked ahead, following a corridor that led to a large sitting area. Glass doors opened onto a beautiful view of the mountain behind the hotel and a terrace abutting a small creek, gurgling at its feet. I'm surprised there's so much water, Hélène remarked, crouching down. After so much time in the bone-dry desert, it wasn't enough to merely look at the water. She needed to touch it, to feel its cool caress. Madame! came a voice from behind us, alarmed. Hélène froze, turning to find a handsome Moroccan in his mid-twenties standing in the doorway. I'm so sorry, he said, his initial expression of concern giving way to a polite smile. It's just that, well, let me show you. He picked up a palm leaf and stirred the water 
disturbing a multitude of nearly formless black creatures lurking in the creek bed vegetation. Leeches, I observed with disgust. Leeches? asked Hélène, not familiar with the word in English. Des sensus, translated the young man. Mais non, c'est dégueulasse, Hélène exclaimed in disgust. Introductions took place, and before long we were situated in two comfortable, spacious rooms overlooking the mountains. The next day we awoke to a familiar pitter-patter. It seemed out of place, and as I slowly came to, I wondered if I was hearing right. Walking to the window, I confirmed that I was. It was raining. Puddles on the ground in a swollen creek suggested it had been for quite a while. Fortunately, before breakfast came to an end, so had the precipitation. Relieved our excursion to the gorges wasn't getting rained out, we set off, Jean-Luc immediately lodging his first complaint of the day. He had lost his hat. His extra-sensitive eyes were now extra-vulnerable to the sun's blinding rays. Except he was wearing sunglasses. Why was the hat so important for his eyes? I decided not to ask. The trailhead was a 20-minute stroll from the hotel. Soon we were walking through a spartan terrain of reddish rock accented by colorful wildflowers. Jean-Luc initially took the lead, but quickly grew tired of the bothersome insects along the trail. Every time we approached a bush, they took flight with an alarming buzz. Hélène moved to the head of the line, untroubled by the harmless bugs. Ascending a steep ravine, its rough striated walls thrust upwards by an ancient seismic upheaval, we came out onto a ridge dividing two mountain flanks. Wide but steep, it afforded spectacular views of an arid valley far below. A river winded along the valley floor, flanked by the only green in sight other than occasional bushes defying the odds on the mountainside, surviving with almost no water. The dramatic landscape reminded me of the Grand Canyon, while for Peter it called to mind a similar region in Australia. Jean-Luc and Hélène had never seen anything like it. On our way back to the hotel, we came upon a roadside inn we'd seen on the way to the trail. Everyone hungry from the hike, we decided to stop for lunch. A portly man in his fifties named Ahmed greeted us. Jovial and curious, rather than get right down to business, Ahmed wanted to chat. He was so eager to talk, in fact, I couldn't help but wonder how long it'd been since he'd had any human interaction. He explained that the region hadn't seen any precipitation for months, and that a thunderstorm, I hadn't heard the thunder, but Peter had, this time of year was very unusual. When we told him where we had hiked, he regretted to inform us we hadn't made it to the actual Dades Gorges. We turned off too early and explored another area that, though beautiful in its own right, was nothing in comparison. Just when we thought he was going for the menus, Ahmed got out his guest books. I have many, many guests from all over the world, he explained, and I have them all sign my book. There were four or five each full of photographs and long, glowing tributes to the incomparable hospitality each and every guest had experienced at Ahmed's roadside inn. The kudos went on and on, page after page. I began to wonder if we'd have to get through them all before we could eat. Ahmed was so enthusiastic about sharing, I didn't dare ask, for fear of hurting his feelings. Jean-Luc had no such qualms. Are we going to eat? he asked point blank. Ah oui, bien sûr! Ahmed exclaimed, as though snapped out of a stupor. I almost forgot. Uh, What would you like? His offerings were limited, consisting exclusively of vegetable dishes. I can make you a kebab, he added, almost by way of apology. But I would have to walk a half an hour to town to get meat. Peter shot me a look asking if he'd heard right. 
Had Ahmed really just offered to walk half an hour to get meat? He couldn't drive because of a mudslide further down the road. I'll have the tagine, I said. By now I was ready to eat just about anything. I hoped my making a quick decision would prompt the others to do the same. Peter followed suit, also ordering the tagine. Hélène wasn't sure yet, and Jean-Luc needed more information. You said you had kebab? he asked. My jaw dropped. Was it possible Jean-Luc had somehow failed to hear Ahmed say he'd have to walk half an hour to get meat? Ahmed was no less taken aback, though he tried not to let it show. Pausing to regroup, he smiled patiently before lowering his voice and repeating, almost gravely, as though broaching a delicate subject, what would be required of him to prepare a kebab? Jean-Luc didn't care. Rather than back down, he continued debating whether or not to order the meat dish. Hélène intervened, gently trying to persuade him that a vegetable one would be preferable. He, however, was defiant. He would choose what he wanted on his own. After exhaustive deliberations, Jean-Luc came to a decision. He had settled on an omelette. Not again, he muttered to himself. Ahmed looked as relieved as if he'd just passed a kidney stone, disappearing to the kitchen before Jean-Luc had any second thoughts. Refusing to let it go, Jean-Luc explained to Hélène that getting the meat wouldn't have been that big a deal. No doubt Ahmed was exaggerating, and he would have just sent one of the boys. Exactly which boy Ahmed would have sent was hard to say, since we had neither seen nor heard another soul since our arrival. After leaving our marks in the annals of Ahmed's history, we returned to the hotel, gathered our belongings, and prepared for the next leg of our journey. Finding transportation proved problematic. The first minibus that passed was heading up the mountain and wouldn't be returning for at least an hour. The second was headed in the right direction, but was already filled beyond capacity, even by local standards. Twenty minutes later, a white minibus rounded the curve up the road, pausing just long enough for the four of us to pile in. It was already half full. Scarcely had we gotten settled, then Jean-Luc had another outburst. Mon chapeau! What's that? asked Hélène, as taken by surprise as the rest of us. My hat! he cried again, still in French, as out of control as a child throwing a tantrum. All eyes followed his finger, pointed at a young Moroccan man in the passenger seat up front. Once again, Hélène tried to calm down her hysterical partner. He would have nothing of it. The Moroccan had his hat, and he was going to get it back, no matter what. The hat in question was a red baseball cap, a cheap knockoff of a popular European brand. They were everywhere. How could Jean-Luc be so sure that this particular one was his? It wasn't as if the Moroccan had stayed at our hotel or shared our cab the day before. The chances he would have come across Jean-Luc's hat were about as good as the chances of Jean-Luc exhibiting a moment of humility. All eyes on him, the accused said nothing. He glanced at the driver, then diverted his gaze outside, as though oblivious to the mad Frenchman. Are you going to give me my hat? demanded Jean-Luc, refusing to back down. The man still said nothing. Hélène pleaded for Jean-Luc to stop. He, however, was only more convinced with each passing moment of the legitimacy and valor of his crusade. As if he hadn't already gone too far, he went a step further. When I get back to France, I'm going to tell all the French people that Moroccans are thieves. Is that what you want me to tell them, huh? He ranted. I was embarrassed. I was angry. I cursed the moment we had agreed to share a cab. The minibus stopped to pick up a couple of more passengers, who stuffed themselves in back next to Hélène and Jean-Luc. 
Not missing a beat, Jean-Luc explained to the newcomers how he'd been wronged not only by the man in front, but countless other Moroccans throughout his trip. It made no sense. Why was he looking for sympathy from the very people he was insulting? Stranger still, why was he getting it? It was the same scenario I would observe later when a self-destructive, manipulative old man in Tangier turned a whole crowd against a cafe worker. Didn't these people see any reason to question the raving Frenchman's story? Weren't they at all offended by his accusations and insults about their compatriots? Jean-Luc continued throwing his fit. The Moroccans who had befriended him up at arms at the cruel, unjust fate he'd suffered in their country. Still, no matter how loud he complained, no matter how offensive his allegations or threats, the man up front refused to acknowledge his spectacle. We arrived at our destination. Scores of other minibuses and taxis congregated at what was essentially a regional transit hub. No sooner was the door thrown open than Peter and I bolted for a shady corner on the other side of the sea of vehicles. We wanted no part of Jean-Luc's grand finale. That didn't mean, however, we weren't going to watch it. From our vantage point, we couldn't hear what was said. We saw Jean-Luc approach the Moroccan wearing his hat and gesture aggressively, making a scene that began to draw in other drivers and passers-by. That we had expected. What we hadn't expected was what came next. Without a word, the Moroccan handed Jean-Luc the hat and walked away. While Peter and I questioned whether we'd seen correctly, Jean-Luc practically jumped up and down with glee, vindicated by his perceived victory. But that wasn't what it looked like from our perspective. To us, it seemed much more likely the unjustly accused Moroccan had taken the higher ground, giving the spoiled Frenchman the hat like he might have given a bratty child their toy. By the time Jean-Luc and Hélène were ready to discuss transportation options, Peter and I were already on our way out of town. 